no matter how independent or self-sufficient of a person that you consider yourself to be, each one of us longs to be led well. Whether it's a competent and knowledgeable tour guide or a boss that cares for us and sets out to help us be successful in our work, or whether it's parents, a mother and a father who protect their children and teach them wisdom, teach them to walk with God. We intuitively know what good leadership is when we sit under it. And you know what? It's not even just a convenience to have good leadership oftentimes. Good leadership is oftentimes the difference between life and death. And so millions around the world suffer under poor leadership that leaves them physically vulnerable and without hope. Some leaders in history stand out particularly as deadly to be under their leadership. Joseph Stalin, who led the Soviet Union in the early 1900s, ordered the execution of 800,000 people. Two million people are thought to have starved to death or been killed in the prison that he sanctioned. Or consider Mao Zedong, who led China during the 1900s as well. He launched the Cultural Revolution in China back in 1966. It was a time of great chaos in China, and so the records aren't very clear or accurate, but there are estimates of the deaths under his rule during the Cultural Revolution that ranged from some 500,000 to perhaps even 20 million people, some historians believe. And of course, there's always Hitler to point to. Wicked leadership is at the least discouraging and frustrating, and at worst, it's deadly. We're comparing two leaders this morning in our passage, two kings, in fact. One leads to death, and one leads to life. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. We're in the New Testament, in the second of the four Gospels of Mark. Mark chapter 6 is where we are, and we're beginning at verse 14, and we're going all the way through to verse 44. So Mark chapter 6, verse 14 through 44. And someone asked me a question last week after the service that I think might be helpful for you to hear the question and also my answer for that. And they they came to me afterwards and said, Brian, um, what is the difference between the gospel and the gospels? the gospel and the gospels. Of course, I just asked you to turn to the gospel of Mark. Technically, the name of that book in the Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. The book right before it is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And then there's Luke and there's John. And when those four men wrote their accounts of Jesus's life, those particular accounts became a genre of literature or a type of literature, a gospel. But inside of them, inside of those books, and really, honestly, throughout the entire Bible, in every book of the Bible, we find something called 
the gospel. And the gospel can be defined as the message from God that leads to salvation. The message from God that leads to salvation. So in the book of Mark, which is a gospel, we find the gospel, the message of salvation, the message of God that leads to salvation. Well, I hope you've turned there to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 44. Let me read that for us. Follow along with me. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Would you pray with me? Praise you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. In the name of Jesus, amen. Every time Jews would sit down to a meal, that prayer that I just prayed would be a typical table prayer that they would pray. They were praising God for providing for them. And likewise, when we sit down every Friday morning and we hear God's word, we eat. We eat spiritually speaking. And I pray that this morning you would feast on what God has to speak to you about from his word. The main point of this entire passage from verses 14 all the way to 44 is this. If you're taking notes, it might help you to write it down. Kings of the world lead to death. But King Jesus leads to life. Kings of the world lead to death. But King Jesus leads to life. And as we walk through it, as I read it, in fact, I'm sure you heard the two distinct sections of the passage that I read. The one that highlighted King Herod and the second that highlighted King Jesus. So the first is going to be tiled. King Herod's cruelty leads to death. That's the first point. King Herod's cruelty leads to death. And the second will be King Jesus' compassion leads to life. King Jesus' compassion leads to life. Well, we saw last week that Jesus had returned to his hometown of Nazareth, where he had encountered a encountered a dramatic lack of faith in the people there. He was only able to heal a few. And he declared while he was there that a prophet doesn't have any honor in his hometown or among his own family. And Mark tells us even that Jesus marveled at the Nazarene's lack of faith. He was blown away. Perhaps it was that shocking incident in Nazareth that drove home to Jesus the urgency that the gospel needed to be preached in as many towns and villages as possible throughout all of Israel. Maybe that motivated him then to gather up his 12 disciples and to send them out in pairs to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to proclaim repentance, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he sent them out in his authority to do all those things. They went in the name of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. And it's perhaps just that acceleration of the preaching of the good news throughout northern Israel and all the miracles that were happening through those 12 disciples that King Herod heard about the ministry of Jesus. Perhaps it was that. And we see that in verse 14. 
that begins our first section. King Herod's cruelty leads to death. And it runs from verse 14 all the way through 29. See, Herod and many others were confused about Jesus. They didn't have local television reports where everyone could tune in every night and see Jesus in action. They didn't have YouTube. They didn't have the internet. And so word traveled by mouth. And of course, that led to lots of confusion about who this Jesus was. People knew he was powerful. He was authoritative. He was doing many miracles. But they just didn't understand exactly who he was. What was his identity? And we see that Herod's equally as confused in verses 14 through 16. There were three basic opinions about Jesus at that point in time in his ministry. The first was that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. You'll remember that back in chapter 1, the very first chapter of the book of Mark, Jesus did not begin his public ministry until it says that John the Baptist was arrested. We don't get too much information about what had happened back there in chapter 1, but we're going to get more about it in this chapter this morning. And so people might have thought, since John the Baptist disappeared from public view at the time he was arrested, that then when Jesus followed after him, that perhaps John had been executed, which he eventually was, but they thought maybe that John had been executed and Jesus was John raised from the dead. In verse 14, 15, excuse me, we see that others thought, a second opinion was that he was Elijah, that Jesus was the Elijah of the Old Testament spoken about in the book of Kings, who was also spoken about in the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, as someone who would come before the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment. It's in the last few verses of the last book in the Old Testament, verses that stand out. And so people expect Elijah to come back. So perhaps Jesus was Elijah, they thought. The third opinion was that others thought he was just a prophet like the prophets of old. Now Herod thinks Jesus must have been John the Baptist raised from the dead. So he chose the opinion number one, the first opinion. And it seems, of course, that the reason he thought this was that he was dealing with a guilty conscience because he was the one who had commanded that John be murdered. And with that, Mark starts telling us the story of John's murder. So verses 17 through 29, all of the rest of this section that we're going to look back is really all one big long flashback to what had happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. Now, you should know that Herod was one of four rulers installed by the Romans to oversee four, one of four different regions that Israel had been divided up into. Technically, he wasn't a king, actually. He lobbied for that title of king, but the Romans wouldn't give it to him. But perhaps in the local uh, language, he um, perhaps insisted that he be called king. Maybe that's why... Mark refers to him as a king, or maybe just because he thinks of himself as a king. We learn in the first four verses that Herod had somehow convinced his brother Philip's wife, named Herodias, to get divorced from Philip and to marry him. But this was against God's law. It was an 
unlawful divorce, an unlawful marriage. It was what we might even consider an adulterous marriage. And John the Baptist was calling Herod and Herodias, his new wife, out for this sin. He had rebuked them. And perhaps it was a very public rebuke as well. It's not stated explicitly in our text, but I think we can assume that because Herodias, his new wife, Herod's new wife, wanted to have John put to death because of this rebuke. And so John was embarrassing her, embarrassing the two of them. Now look at the end of verse 19 that then goes into verse 20. It says, but she, Herodias, could not have him killed for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see, Herod feared John in some way, and he didn't want to let his new wife kill him. And so his answer, his strategy, was to arrest John and put him in prison. And that way he couldn't publicly rebuke himself and his wife, Herodias, and she couldn't have him killed at the same time, or it was more difficult at least. It was a, a rather cruel way of what the text says, keeping him safe. <laughs> Very cruel, in fact. You know, once again, we see that there are responses to Jesus and to his message of the good news that initially might seem favorable towards it, but they don't represent faith. They don't represent faith. It says that Herod feared John. It says that he knew that he was a righteous and a holy man. Except it says that he kept him safe, uh, sort of. <laughs> and it says that he liked to listen to John. But despite all that, Herod wasn't exhibiting repentance and faith, was he? And no one is a true Christian. No one has their sins forgiven or has the promise of everlasting life with God without repentance and faith. Interest alone is not enough to be a true Christian. Each one of us, in fact, needs to have spiritual discernment to recognize, with God's help, of course, repentance and faith both in ourselves and in the lives of the people around us. We need that. We need that kind of spiritual discernment. We want to be able to do that in order to affirm those around us who are Christians and to lead those around us who are not, but possibly mistaken, to a true knowledge, to repentance and faith in our Savior Jesus. We want to be able to do that so that we don't carelessly assure someone that they're in Christ when in fact they show clear signs of not being people who've repented. Their lifestyle says anything but the fact that they are Christians even though they may speak it with their mouth. When we don't have discernment and when we assure people who aren't true Christians that they are, then we are giving them false hope. We're helping to blind them to a true spiritual danger that they will face on the day of judgment when they stand before Jesus. We're helping to blind them when we falsely assure them. And so it's ultimately a loving thing. It's a loving thing to be discerning in who we affirm that we believe is a Christian. That's love. Ah, you know, when someone repents 
and puts their faith and trust in Jesus, the word, the theological word that we use is called conversion. And uh, there's a great little book that I want to commend to you. It's called Conversion by Michael Lawrence, How God Creates a People. I really highly recommend this book to you. And this evening at our evening service, I'm going to be giving away several of these. Just a little incentive to come back tonight. It's a great book to help you grow in discernment. And you know, that's one of the important responsibilities that elders and church members need to have to be able to discern true conversion. That's what we do, that's what we need to have uh, when we vote someone into membership into our local church. We're looking for evidence of repentance and faith. We ask about their understanding of the gospel. Can they recount a very simple gospel message to us, that message from God that leads to salvation? They don't have to have all the words right. They don't even necessarily have to have it in the right order. But they need to understand the message. We also ask them how their life has changed since they became a Christian, how they're living for Christ even now. And those two things, their understanding of the gospel and the evidence in their life that they have repented and followed Jesus, that's what we're looking for in someone's life to affirm their conversion, to affirm their faith in Jesus. And then what we do after the elders have uh, had a chat with each person who wants to come into membership in the church, and we've asked those questions, is at a members meeting, the elders present in a shortened form that evidence so that we as a whole church can affirm that person's faith and, and perhaps ask some more questions if we need to to clarify where they are spiritually. You know, a church's purity and spiritual health is dependent on its members, led by the elders, being able to discern true conversion. It's very, very important. Well, if we look back in our text at verse 20, an undiscerning person might mistake Herod for a person of faith, of course. But beginning in verse 21, we see that he's anything but a person who's repented, right? Herodias was looking for an opportunity to get John murdered, and surprisingly, it came at a birthday party. Of all places, Herod threw a birthday banquet for himself, and he invited all the nobles and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee to gather and celebrate him. It was a party, of course, for the most important and powerful people. And somehow during this birthday party, it's arranged that Herodias' daughter, she's not named in our text, it was a daughter from her former marriage, would dance for the crowd. Now, you can be sure that this dance was erotic and sensual and completely inappropriate. And, of course, it therefore pleased Herod and his guests. They were delighted with it. And we don't know for sure, but it's likely, of course, that there was lots of alcohol there. And after the dance, Herod promises that he'll give her anything that she asks for, up to half of his kingdom. It's kind of an outlandish promise that he makes, of course. It's foolish. We should understand this promise as a figure of speech, but it was inappropriate nevertheless and foolish. And so the young girl 
runs off to consult her mother, Herodias, who seizes the opportunity to get at John, and she tells her daughter, go and ask for the head of John the Baptist. And not only does she go and do that, but she asks for it on a platter. Look with me again at verse 26. It says, And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Once again, we see Herod is sorry, but he's not repentant. He's made a foolish, perhaps a drunken promise, and he doesn't want to admit it. He's not a man of integrity by keeping a foolish promise. He's sinning greatly. And all of that to protect his reputation. His reputation is more important to him than the life of an innocent man. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to be careful that you don't sin when you proceed to do a foolish thing simply because you promised to do it. Keeping your word in that kind of a situation when you've agreed to do something foolish is not honorable. It's not a mark of integrity. Integrity in that situation is having the courage to say, you know what, I never should have promised to do that. And because it's sin, I'm not going to do it. Please forgive me. Now Herod, because of his extreme selfishness and his complete disregard for human life, keeps his wicked promise. And this gruesome party ends with Herod dispatching an executioner to go to the prison and to cut off John's head. And the man whom Jesus called a great prophet has his life ended far too early and by the most vile and violent of means. He was a prophet without honor. His disciples came and they took his mutilated body and they laid it in a tomb. And that's the end of what Mark records about the life of Jesus, other than what Jesus says about John, excuse me, the life of John. This account of John's brutal murder, by the way, I don't know if you've looked down in your Bible and you've seen the heading over that section. Uh, if it was anything like my Bible, it says the death of John the Baptist, which is a gross understatement. And I uh, actually was a little disappointed with my Bible. This was a cruel and wicked murder. It's murder. And it should be at least called murder. <laughs> it comes just after the disciples are sent out. They were motivated by love to go and to call people to repent, to turn to God, to heal people, to cast out demons, to find forgiveness in the message of Jesus, to come home to their Father in heaven who awaited them with open arms, just like John's ministry was a ministry that called people to repentance. All of that ministry, the ministry of the disciples, the ministry of John, was a ministry of love, a ministry of grace, a ministry of good news. And yet, John's life is cut short. And coming just on the heels of the disciples being sent out to do a ministry very similar to his, we see that there is a great cost in following Jesus. There is a great cost, brothers and sisters. John paid it in the extreme when the executioner forced his head down on the block. But don't think for a minute, don't think for a minute that John regretted living a life 
of obedience to God? No, no. It was an honor for him to give his life for the honor of God. Now, you and I may not die an early, brutal death like John, but every time we say no to sin and yes to righteousness, every time we say no to the temptations that Satan puts in our path and yes to the paths of goodness and righteousness that God puts before us, then we are honoring God. We're honoring God just like John honored God with his obedience and his faithfulness. Every time we forsake an idol in our lives, maybe, maybe a relationship that's not holy and it's not best for us. Every time maybe we say no to a substance that we feel that we have to have in order to cope with what's going on in our lives. Or every time we set aside that drive to accumulate more money at any cost in our lives. Anytime we do that, we glorify Jesus. We honor him just like John did, perhaps at a great cost. We're setting our sights on a greater reward, a greater prize, a greater land. And listen, brothers and sisters, it's real. It's not imaginary. It's not pie in the sky, as they say. John's there now. He's there now, and he doesn't regret giving up a long life. He was received into glory by God the Father, who said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. What costs are you facing in your life in order to follow Jesus right now? I promise you, whatever they are, it is worth it to follow and obey Jesus. It's so worth it, friends. Well, the, the apostles had obeyed Jesus by going out to do the same kind of ministry that he had demonstrated to them. And beginning in verse 30, we see that they've returned to Jesus, which introduces us into the next section, which is titled, King Jesus' Compassion Leads to Life. That's verse 30 through 44. King Jesus' compassion leads to life. Look back at 30 through 32 with me. The disciples return, and as they're trying to share with one another, the crowds are streaming in and out. They've gotten word that the disciples have come back, that Jesus is there with him, that he's received them, and there's not even a chance for them to eat. It's an extremely busy time. It's crowded. And so Jesus, knowing their need for rest and reflection on all that's happened, proposes that they come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. And so he leads them out and they get it in the boat to go to just that, a desolate place where they can rest. It was like a staff retreat for the disciples. But the crowds see where they're going and they know exactly where that place might be, and they're so eager to be with Jesus and perhaps even to be with the disciples who had done equally powerful things in their ministry. They race ahead on foot, and they get there before Jesus and the disciples land in the boat. And this was a tremendous number of people. Of course, if we read all the way to verse 44 at the very end of the passage, we see that it was 5,000 men. And if you add in women and children, it's likely that it could have been fifteen to 20,000 people waiting on the shore for them. Not an ideal place for 
a retreat of rest and reflection. And yet Jesus, when he gets out of the boat, look with me in verse 44. When he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Well, the retreat grows out, goes out the window and he begins to teach the people. All of these thousands and thousands of people. And Mark here in this verse 34 and really throughout this section 30 through 44, is using words and phrases to point us back to important Old Testament passages. Back in the book of Numbers, which is in the first five books of the Bible, Moses had led the Israelites through the wilderness. He led them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And they had refused to go into the promised land. And so God said, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then the next generation will be able to enter. Well, Moses led them during those 40 years. And after the 40 years was over, Moses spoke to the people. And he said this, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That's in the book of Numbers. And so God gave to Moses and to the Israelites Joshua to lead the people, a man whose name, when translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, is actually Jesus. And the mention of sheep without a shepherd also calls to mind an incredible chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 34, which begins this way. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. He goes on to say, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And that whole chapter is ended this way, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. What an incredible promise, all the way back in the book of Numbers and the book of Ezekiel, and really throughout the Old Testament. But the hour had grown late, and the disciples recognized the crowd's need for food. They're in the wilderness like the Israelites were in the wilderness. The disciples want to send them away for food, which is a logical conclusion. It's very pragmatic. It's very practical. It's reasonable to think that. But Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Can you imagine how crazy that sounded to the disciples? 15 to 20,000 people. And he says to the 12, you give them something to eat. He must have sounded completely crazy, mad, out of touch with reality. <laughs> and all they have is five loaves and two fish. That's what they can produce. And so Jesus says, have them sit in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he prayed a blessing to God for provision. He looked up 
and he prayed. Of course, I mentioned this at the very beginning of the sermon, that Jews would often pray a standard prayer. It's that very prayer that I prayed for us before we began the sermon in our time in God's Word. It goes like this. I'll repeat it. Praise you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. And so Jesus began to hand out the bread and the portions of fish. And he kept handing out the bread and the portions of fish. And it kept coming and kept coming. And the disciples would distribute it. And then they would come back and they would distribute it. And they would come back. And it went on and on until everyone, 15 to 20,000 people had eaten and they were satisfied. And there's even leftovers. The disciples go throughout the crowd and they put them in baskets and there's 12 basketfuls of leftovers. You know, at the beginning of our service, we read Psalm 23 together. Listen again and think of Jesus feeding the thousands in the wilderness. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod and staff, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We've seen two kings in these passages, King Herod and King Jesus. Herod threw a party to honor himself. Jesus provided a meal to serve the needs of others. Herod gathers people in a palace to draw attention to himself. Jesus gathers people in the wilderness to show them God's power and God's love. Herod surrounds himself with the most powerful for his own political ends. Jesus surrounds himself with those who are aware of their great neediness. Herod's life is filled with sin and immorality. Jesus' life is filled with purity and righteousness. Herod Herod's life teaches others to sin and dishonor God. Jesus' life teaches others righteousness and love for God. Herod seeks selfish gain from those who follow him, and Jesus selfishly serves those who follow him. Herod is a wicked shepherd who feeds on the sheep. Jesus is the true shepherd who finds and feeds the sheep. Herod's kingship leads to death, and Jesus' kingship leads to life. Jesus is the true shepherd that God would send to his people. The Messiah has come. Can you see it? He is the king that we all long for, that we all want to follow. He's the one who rescues, the one who binds up the wounded, the one who feeds the hungry with God's word, the one who satisfies us like no other. The good news of the kingdom of God the gospel is this, that the Messiah has come, that he's leading an exodus, a rescue that's been planned from before time. 
for those who are slaves to sin, slaves like you and I, he lived a righteous life for us because we couldn't. He died to satisfy God's just demand, death, because of our sin. Rose to new life by the power of the Spirit. To take the throne at the right hand of God and to rule and to reign forever and ever, that's what Jesus has done. He is the perfect, righteous, loving King. Is He your King? Is He your King? He can be. He can be if you will only turn away from your sin and trust in Him and follow Him and believe in Him and walk in His ways. And if He's your King, are you letting Him lead you into rest and rejoicing in His work in and through you like He set out to do with the disciples when they returned from their ministry? Are you letting Him teach you all that you need to know in His Word this coming year so that you can live for Him and be aware of Him no matter what the situation is that you encounter, just like He taught the crowds God's Word? Will you let Him do miracles in your life? Maybe not physical miracles, but miracles nonetheless. Miracles of provision to make a little bit go a long way just like he did with the five loaves and the two fish. King Jesus does all this and more for his people, brothers and sisters. All this and more for you and I. Let's put our trust in him. Pray with me. Praise you, O Lord, our God. You are king of the world and king of our lives. Amen.